Well, at this point here in Genesis 12, it's been more than 300 years since Noah's flood. Uh, That was the last recorded instance of God speaking to mankind. That's a long time to go without hearing a word from the Lord, isn't it? Over 300 years. Some of God's faithful people may have begun to think that God had forgotten them. Uh, Maybe God had withdrawn from active participation in the affairs of planet Earth. You know what? I can't really blame God if He if He had done that. You, you think about the, the big events that have happened so far in Genesis. After all, in Genesis, we've read of a threefold crisis. Chapter 3 was the fall of mankind into sin. 6 through 8 was the flood. Chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. And by the way, all those events present us with a world that does not want God in their life. They, they don't want Yahweh's kingship. It's a world that was, as a result of those things, it was cursed, destroyed, and scattered. And so, if you didn't know the end of the story, you'd think, well, okay, here comes the end, right? <laughs> you know, the judge is going to appear and... Uh, and the world is going to receive divine judgment and, and be burned up in a big fire, right? If you didn't know the end of the story, you might think that way. But when you come to Genesis 12, remember remember we've said this a lot, when you see God's judgment, look for His grace. Yet again, we've just had God's judgment in, in chapter 11. Yet again, we see God's grace. And Yahweh speaks again. So let's see what Yahweh says. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is an introduction to the what we typically call the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, God's covenant to Abraham, and and there's a lot that overflows into us as well, and I'll share with that that with you in a moment. But here's basically my theme that uh, we'll elaborate on today is that God's grace enables God's people to obey God's commands. Let me repeat that. God's grace enables God's people to obey God's commands. Well, we see here in Genesis 12, verse 1, Yahweh spoke after 300 years. What a blessing that is. But when he speaks, notice he, what do we, what, what's the first thing coming out of his mouth? Is a command. So here's, here's your big points, your main points in the message today. And I, I have them all with G and a C. Hopefully you can remember these if you're taking notes. So we're going to look at God's command, God's covenant, and God's Christ. Okay? God's command, God's covenant, and God's Christ. And we'll, see those here in the text. So first of all, notice God's command. Yahweh speaks 
And he just gets right into it. Go! <laughs> Go. Isn't that interesting? That's, by the way, there's a word of hope there for even for us. That sometimes God may seem like He is silent. Uh, you might wonder if He has forgotten you. Or, or worse yet, maybe, maybe you might be concerned He's laid you aside altogether. But Genesis 12 is a reminder that God never forgets His people. Never forgets His people. Never. And even after the rebellion of the Tower of Babel, even after three centuries of seeming silence, God had not forgotten His promise to save the world. Remember Genesis 3.15? Do you think God's going to forget His promise that He's going to send someone to crush the head of Satan? Do you think He's forgotten? Some people think that way. And so with, with God's plan in mind here, God speaks to a man named Abram. God's command is a very tall order, isn't it? Imagine you're, you're in Abram's sandals here. And God says, go. But it's not just go. I mean, to think about this for a moment. What did God tell Abram? I'll kind of put it in my own words. You know, Abram, I want you to pack up all of your belongings. I want you to move. I want you to leave behind your homeland. And I want you to leave, you know, including all that culture and your language, everything you've known your entire life, leave it behind. I want you to leave your relatives too. And by the way, make sure you gather together all your possessions because you're never coming back. <laughs> never coming back home. Not going to be with your father in your father's house anymore. I want you to leave it all, Abram. And I want you to come follow me. And by the way, Abram, I'm not going to tell you where we're going until we get there. Yeah, that's... In my words, that's pretty much what God tells Abram. That's a very difficult task. And that's why Abram, Abraham, shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. God gave him great faith to obey. His grace was very evident on his life. And by the way, if Abram was anything like most of us, probably all of us, he could have thought of all kinds of excuses and arguments for why he shouldn't obey God. Very easy, isn't it, for us to do this? I mean, think about it. Can you imagine Abram arguing with God here saying, well, uh, surely God doesn't want me to do that. Maybe you're thinking of somebody else, right? <laughs> uh, maybe I didn't hear God right. Maybe, you know, maybe the battery went on in Abram's hearing aid, right? Selective hearing. We, we do that sometimes, right? You know, maybe God meant to say something else and I heard him say this. Uh, you know, God wouldn't ask me to leave everything that I've known and then leave that all behind. Surely that's not being a wise steward of God's resources, right? You know how we spiritualize things sometimes, right? Uh, maybe Abraham would say, you know, I can obey and serve God just fine right here. Ur is a beautiful place. There's a lot of good resources here in Ur. That doesn't make sense to just wander off and have no idea where I'm going. But there's a good lesson in, in 
Abram's obedience. What does he do? He goes forward, not because it made sense, not at this point anyway, not because this was an easy thing to do, not because it seemed the best way to raise his family, but he goes simply because God said so. God commanded him to go. By the way, that's the essence of faith in Hebrews 11. People of faith obey God's commands even when they don't know what all of that obedience entails. What, what, what is that obedience going to bring into your life? And so yet again we see God's grace enabling God's people to obey God's commands. Abraham obeyed because God was gracious to him. God gave him a, a very precious promise, a lot of precious promises here, which we call the Abrahamic covenant. So let's have a look at God's covenant here to Abraham. And in fact, there's seven I wills. I just want to point the I wills out to you because God over and over here says, I will, I will. So it's not about Abraham here. It is, this is all about God. This is his covenant. He's picked this idolater out of Mesopotamia there in uh, modern-day Iraq, picked this idolater out, and he's, he's going to do this stuff, all this stuff here. Not because Abraham is awesome, but because God's awesome. God's going to glorify his name through Abraham. Let's look at the covenant. Number one, notice the end of verse one. God says to Abraham, I will show you a land. I will show you a land. By the way, that's an incredible statement. Uh, you say, well, why is that such an incredible statement? Well, consider where Abraham is when God says these words. Is Abraham in the promised land? Is Abraham in Israel? No, not yet. Abraham's still, he's in modern-day Iraq. They're in Mesopotamia. He's a, he hasn't arrived in the promised land of Israel yet, but as far as God's concerned, this is a done deal. Because God's saying, I will. Number two, God says, I will make of you a great nation. By the way, this is the first of many unconditional promises of God to Abraham. And that's important because it wasn't conditioned on Abraham's obedience. Because you read on in Genesis, Abraham fails many times. He's a failure, just like you and me. But yet God's promises were unconditional. And that, that's good they're unconditional because, again, it, it's against reason. It's against the actual performances of Abraham and even Abraham's descendants. They're not perfect either, are they? Read, read about Isaac and Jacob. Those guys were a mess at times. <laughs> they're a mess. So God's unconditional promise remained. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on Genesis, and he made much of the irrational nature of this promise in his commentary. He called this one of the most outstanding and most important passages in all of Scripture. Here's what he wrote. You should consider, you should consider that what the Lord promises Abraham here is altogether impossible, unbelievable, and untrue if you follow reason, because it cannot be seen. If the Lord has something like this in mind for Abraham, why does he not let him remain in the land and with his kindred, where Abraham undoubtedly had some influence or reputation? 
Is the way to success easier among strange people, where one does not even have a place to set one's foot, than at home, where one's fields, friends, neighbors, and relatives are? Where one's household has been well established? He was 75 years old, but Sarah was 10 years younger and barren at that. How, I ask you, do these facts agree with this promise, I will make of you a large nation? This means that his descendants would be a great and numerous people. But where are the descendants to come from? Since Abraham's marriage is childless. These huge masses of unbelief and these high mountains, which could suppress his faith completely, the holy patriarch overcomes and crosses by faith. He simply clings to this one thought. Behold, God is promising this. He will not deceive you even though you do not see the way, the manner, or even the time of the fulfillment of this promise. (laughs) Praise God. That's the end of his quote. By the way, the reason that this is true, that this promise is true, is that the blessing that God speaks of will come from Himself and not from the nation. This is not anything inherent in Abraham. It's from God. So in what does the greatness of Abraham's descendants consist? Why is Israel great? Well, it's not because of their numbers. The greatness of Israel was a spiritual greatness primarily. They were great because God set His love on this group of people. He blessed them spiritually, and by above all, by the way, above all, through them, what does He do? He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the world's Savior. Number three. The third, I will, is God says, I will bless you, Abraham. I will bless you. And so God adds this uh, a personal promise to Abram. A person, by the way, is blessed when, because of God's gracious working, things go well with him and what he does prospers. Abraham wasn't blessed, again, because he's so awesome or he's so intelligent or has so much money. Although God did bless his business, he prospered his business. If you look at the very next chapter in your Bible here, chapter 13, verse 2, notice what it says about Abraham. 13, verse 2 says, says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So, So God is working out his blessing as a part of this covenant to Abraham. God prospered his family. Above all, God so prospered Abraham's faith that he is commended for his faith throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. But why? Why? Why should God bless anyone? Why? Why should God bless you? Well, if God chooses to bless anyone, it's not because of you. May I remind you, it's because... God chooses to do so, and it's for no other reason. By the way, that's what grace is. Grace is God's enabling. It is His blessing upon people who don't deserve His blessing. 
And that's what he does. Abraham didn't deserve this. Nevertheless, God says, I will bless you. That's what grace looks like. And number four, God says, I will make your name great. There's a lot of Abrahams that have parents have named their children throughout the years. Not so much these days, but that that's not the point of this promise here. The greatness of the name doesn't consist in the in the number of people who have been called Abraham. It consists in what the name stands for and what God does with this name. The name itself has the idea of faith in God. And even more, it stands for what God promises and what God has done and He's promised to continue to do. Now, we remember that, hopefully you remember, God changed Abram's name. Abram, by the way, means father of many. And God changed His name to Abraham, which means father of many peoples. Which, by the way, indicates that through Abraham, He's... And his great descendants, particularly the greatest of all his descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ, that blessing would come to all nations and all the families of the earth. All those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be blessed. So the blessing of Abraham is the primarily this blessing of redemption through Jesus Christ. We also I'm going to combine number five and six here. They go together. Notice in verse 3 what God says to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you. Well, you probably know God's people have never lacked for enemies. Some of the most, probably the most hated people on planet earth have been Jews or Israelis. Anti-Semitism is still alive and well on planet earth. And so God adds promises here relating to the, the people and the nations whom uh, Abraham and his descendants would come in contact with. Some would be his friends, some would be his enemies. And so in these words here, God promises to bless those who blessed the Jews and to curse those who cursed him. By the way, lest you think God has forgotten his promise, he has not. These promises are still alive and well. And history shows that God takes His promise very seriously. For example, you read on into the book of Exodus. You remember that God destroyed there at the Red Sea the armies of Egypt who cruelly enslaved Israel for about 430 years. God destroyed Egypt and they ceased to be a world power, the the supreme world power after that time period. And then uh, when, when Israel came to the promised land, when, when the Jews invaded Canaan, you remember there was a woman there at the city of Jericho. Her name was Rahab. And God protected, because, protected Rahab and her family out of all, that entire city. Why? Because she blessed God's people. She helped the Israeli spies. But the city of Jericho was destroyed and God wiped them out, and the walls of Jericho fell down. So of all the people in Canaan, only, by the way, it was only the Gibeonites, remember? The Gibeonites were spared during that invasion because they managed to make a covenant with God's people. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 9. 
I also like what a commentator said, but his name's Donald Barnhouse. Barnhouse, sorry. Barnhouse writes this. It's on the screen. When the Greeks overran Palestine and desecrated the altar in the Jewish temple, they were soon conquered by Rome. When Rome, when Rome killed Paul and many others and destroyed Jerusalem under Titus, Rome soon fell. Spain was reduced to a fifth-rate nation after the Inquisition against the Jews. Poland fell after the pogroms. Hitler's Germany went down after its orgies of anti-Semitism. Britain lost her empire when she broke her faith with Israel. End quote. Do you see God keeping His promises? You cannot curse Israel and get away with it. You must bless Israel to receive God's blessing. By the way, this is one reason I fear for our country. And you should fear for any country, including New Zealand, who is not pro-Israel. Sadly, at the moment, New Zealand is not pro-Israel. New Zealand is not standing up for Israel, are they? New Zealand is not standing for Israel. They're against Israel. And any country who goes against them is going to suffer serious destruction. We've seen it happen over and over in history, and it will continue to happen. You can read it, even about it in the book of Revelation. But there's another promise here in the Abrahamic Covenant mentioned in verse 7. I just want to mention this one while we're talking about the Abrahamic Covenant. Look at verse 7. Because we see that God says, I will give this land, not not just to Abraham, notice, to your offspring. To your offspring. So it's not just for Abraham. And this is an interesting promise, because at the time this promise was given, what did Abraham have? (laughs) Abraham had neither offspring nor land. (laughs) He didn't have anything, pretty much. In fact, he eventually dies without owning any but the land that he was buried in. So he didn't have the land of Israel, even when he, after he died. Yet God had promised land to Abraham's offspring, and Abraham's offspring eventually received it. God's promises, read your Bible, you'll see they do come true, because the God who makes promises always keeps his promises. So we've seen God's command, we've seen God's covenant, we call the Abrahamic covenant, But notice God's Christ. God's Christ. And by Christ, you you hopefully understand the word Christ is a title for Jesus. Jesus being His name. Christ being a title. It just means this is God's anointed one. This is God's chosen one. He is the Messiah. And this is a messianic prophecy right here at the end of chapter, chapter 12, verse 3. What a beautiful promise reminding us of Genesis 3.15 that one would come to crush the head of a serpent. And here we have yet yet another promise reminding us that in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so, my friends, this is God announcing the gospel in advance. He's announcing the gospel, this good news in advance. And by the way, this text is so important in the entire scheme of redemption that it's explained for you in the New Testament. 
that phrase is actually quoted in Galatians. And so Galatians becomes an authoritarian commentary on the book of Genesis. It explains what, what God is trying to tell us here in Genesis 12, verse 3. And so Paul's first reference to Genesis 12, 3 comes in a section which is... Let me give you the context. What is it doing? It's contrasting the gospel of justification by faith with a false gospel that false teachers were teaching. See, these false teachers, these Judaizers, taught that one could not be saved merely by what God has done. It was actually necessary to have works going with that. In fact, if you read the book of Galatians, they taught it was actually necessary for you to be circumcised. And and the whole point of the circumcision was you you become a member of the Jewish nation. So you couldn't be saved if you were outside the Jewish nation. And, and the idea is uh, being a part of that, you become a part of the Jewish nation, you get circumcised, and then then you had to keep the law in order to be saved. That's what they were teaching. And so Paul knew this teaching. He was a Pharisee. He was a a religious leader amongst the Jews. And so what does he do? He replies that it was not necessary to become a physical member of the Jewish nation. Salvation is all by grace. And so I want you to notice, I'm just going to pick a few verses out of Galatians 3. And Paul's going to prove this point. That salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And he uses Abraham as his prime example here. He's the father of the Jews. And so look what he says in Galatians 3, verse 6. It's, it's on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Galatians 3, verse 6 says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, notice quotation marks, because he quotes Genesis 12.3. This is what God says in Genesis 12.3, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's having a discussion here. He's he's countering the false gospel of the Judaizers who who are saying you have to be saved by becoming an Israeli and doing and keeping the law. And so the discussion centers around, by the way, Genesis 15, verse 6, which says that Abraham believed God and that it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's also centering on Genesis 12.3 here, which, of course, says that, that the blessing of God for Abram was not just for him, but for all families of the earth. And moreover, Paul calls this the gospel. Did you notice that? He calls it good news. So Genesis 12.3 and 5, chapter 15, verse 6 were early announcements of this gospel. Now, here's two thoughts that are prominent here. Number one, it is a gospel of salvation through faith, and it's faith alone, not faith plus my works. 
And second thing that that uh, the Bible is teaching here, it is for all nations. Not just the Jew, not just the Israeli, it's for all nations. And notice it includes the non-Jews being the Gentiles. So that's all of you. I don't think any of us are Jews here. So all people are blessed through Abraham. The other thing we see here, number two, is that God's promise involved redemption. It involved redemption. Now, I'll explain what that is if you're not familiar with that big word. Uh, but we see uh, Paul using the idea of redemption here in Galatians 3. And so after introducing the experience of Abraham, Paul then goes on to say that God's promise to Abram involved the redemption not just of him, but of many peoples. So look at verse 13. Galatians 3.13 says this, that Christ redeemed, notice he doesn't say Abram, but Christ redeemed us. Praise God, he redeemed us from what? From the curse of the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Now, my friends, this is really, really important. Don't miss the point. Though Abram might not have understood everything, I'm sure he didn't understand everything, uh, at least during the early stages, surely he couldn't have understood everything. Nevertheless, it's important for this reason, okay? The blessing promised is not some general blessing that uh, that might pertain to physical needs or or even to spiritual needs. But it's a specific blessing here. What is the blessing talking about? When, when And I'm talking about that blessing in Genesis 12, 3, that through Abraham all families of the earth would be blessed. What blessing is he talking about? Because prosperity gospel preachers and others, they... They love taking these things and plucking them out of their context and saying, see, God wants to bless you physically. You're going to be rich and, and healthy and so forth. That, that's not what this is talking about, okay? So what blessing is it? It's a specific blessing that, uh, that, that you know, we all face as creatures of a holy God here. See, we have, here's the problem, Okay. We've all rebelled against the holy God. And as we see here, this is this has brought us under the curse. Paul called that the curse of the law. We are under God's judgment. We're, we're not in a right relationship with God. And moreover, sin has, think of it as a, as a great octopus, tightening its tentacles around you, squeezing you to death. We're unable to escape from its grasp. And so what do you need? You need a redeemer. You need a redeemer is someone who can deliver you from your greatest problem, who can deliver you from the wrath of God and can free you from sin's bondage. That's what a redeemer does. And so on the content of the blessing given to Abraham, this, this is what Jesus did. And so Jesus becomes this Redeemer. This is what Jesus accomplished for His people. You say, 
What is redemption? If you're still not getting what redemption is, the concept of redemption is drawn from the world of commerce. Uh, this word was, was, was used in setting people free. If a, if a slave was set free and someone paid the price to set a slave free, the word used here was redemption. It was the payment of a price of something that has been held in bondage. Uh, we know the idea in connection with pawn shops. You ever put something in, in a pawn shop? Any of you ever done that? I hope you've never had to do that, but uh, some people do this. They find themselves in hard times and do this sort of thing. If, it, if an object is left in a pawn shop, uh, what happens is this object left there at the pawn shop is left there in exchange for a certain amount of money. And later it can be redeemed or it can be bought back. It can be reclaimed by repayment of the money, of course, you have to pay interest because <laughs> the pawn shop's not a charity. But in ancient times, redemption referred primarily to release from slavery. But the same idea was involved here, spiritually speaking. The slave was set free by someone paying the price of his redemption. Therefore, when Jesus is said to have become our Redeemer, this means, what did He do? It means He delivered us from the slave market of sin. He bought us from the bondage of our sin. And do you know what the cost was? The cost was His life. He paid with His own life. His blood was shed to buy you from the slave market of sin. And so God's promise here involves redemption. There's a lot going on here in Genesis 12.3. But since the word Christ is not mentioned in Genesis 12.3, let me just mention that the point here, number three, is this. Here's, look, look at the screen. Number three is that Christ here is the one who is, uh, the, He is the one blessing all the families of the earth. Now I know Christ is not mentioned in verse 3, but the best commentary you can find in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is here in Galatians chapter 3. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because Paul makes a very important point. As he's interpreting Genesis 12, 3, he says that Christ is the, fulfill, is the fulfillment of that promise. Don't take my word for it. Look what the Holy Spirit says in, in Galatians 3, verse 16. Look what he says, Galatians 3.16. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Who is Christ. Christ is God's anointed one. He is God's chosen Messiah. And you say, why is this point made? <laughs> it's to show that only Christ could have done what was needed. He is your only hope of deliverance. And so, my friends, do you understand, we all stand under the curse of the law. We all are under God's wrath. See, 
do you, do you understand you need to be saved from God himself? Primarily, you are saved from God himself. See, we are bound by sin. It's, this is the point. And so therefore, we need a Redeemer. But where is a Redeemer to be found? We couldn't find the Redeemer in Adam. He failed. We couldn't find the Redeemer in Noah. He failed. Is it in Abraham? Is Abraham the promised one who's going to come and crush the head of Satan? Well, you know the story. Read on. He fails too, right? So it's not in Abraham. We don't find Abraham to be the Redeemer because he is bound by sin. He himself needs deliverance. And so the answer is found in your New Testament. For example, uh, Romans chapter 1 says the Redeemer is Jesus. Romans 1 tells us it is He is the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, but declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And Matthew, by the way, shows that Jesus descends from Abraham. Read, read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So Abraham may not have understood all that Jesus would do. But he understood enough because God enables him. to. He's looking ahead in faith to this one. Only Jesus could do what was needed. So Abraham steps out by faith. He goes. Praise God. He obeys. But it was because God was gracious. And God is always gracious to His people to enable His people to obey His commands. And so, praise God. And so, you know what? Even though you're not an Israeli, you're not a Jew, the Bible's telling us by, by trusting in Jesus as our personal Redeemer, you're actually showing that you are actually a true child of Abraham. What a blessing! You're a true child of Abraham. Again, not, not because you've earned it. Just like Abraham, because God is gracious. He enables us to obey. He enables us to, to believe by faith who Jesus is, that He is your Redeemer. He's your Deliverer. He's the one, the only one who can set you free. So we praise God for Abraham and this covenant that God made with Abraham, and through him, all families of the earth will be blessed. We are blessed, aren't we? And so God's people should say amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious promises, for your precious covenant to Abraham, and how that extends to even we Gentiles. We don't deserve it, and so we praise you and thank you. You are gracious. You enable your people to obey your commands, and we're thankful for that. So may we hold on to your promises. May we never lose sight of, of who you are, a covenant-keeping God, and that through Jesus Christ, all families, even us, would be blessed. We are so richly blessed. We look forward to a day when uh, the, the final fulfillment of all of your covenants and promises will, will come to be. So may we live in the light of those precious promises. 
May we not be shaken uh, by, by what's happening around us or in this world or even what Satan is, is about and what he's doing because we know that his, his head is crushed. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.